0: everyone my name is Jen Tosley
1: and I'm Jose Sanchez.
0: This is episode 81 of the Criminology Academy podcast where we are criminally academic.
1: For this episode we are bringing in Professor Ben Crew to speak with us about prison systems and experiences in Norway and England and Wales as well as the Nordic exceptionalism thesis and a systematic comparative analysis of prison life in Norway compared to England and Wales.
0: Ben Crew is Professor of Phenology and Criminal Justice and Deputy Director of the Prisons Research Center at the Institute of Criminology, University of Cambridge. He first joined the Institute of Criminology in 2001 as a postdoctoral researcher, having trained as a sociologist as an undergraduate at Cambridge, a master's student at London School of Economics, and a PhD student at the University of Essex. He is interested in almost all aspects of prison life, in particular the prisoner experience, prison social life and culture, penal power, staff-prisoner relationships, prison management and penal policy, prison quality, and the impact of political, economic, and cultural factors on the nature of imprisonment. His most recent research papers have included a five-year research project titled Penal Making in the Prisoner Experience, a Comparative Analysis which has involved extensive fieldwork in England and Wales and Norway, and a longitudinal study of prisoners serving long life sentences from an early age. He is one of the founding editors of the journal Incarceration and is one of the series editors of the Palgrave Studies in Prisons and Penology with Yvonne Jukes and Thomas Jolvik. He is also a trustee of the Prison Reform Trust.
1: In today's episode, we'll be talking about one of Ben's publications Nordic Penal Exceptionalism, a Comparative Empirical Analysis, co-authored with Alice I Evans, Simon Larmore, Julie Lawerson, Christian Jaland, and Anna Schlehi, published in the British Journal of Criminology in 2023. All right, let's bring in Ben. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to dig into your research on prisons in England and Wales and Norway. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, so let's jump in. Now, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, really the bulk of our listeners come from the United States, about 60% of our downloads over the last two years. That being said, we looked and about 11% of our downloads over the same period of time have come from the United Kingdom, most of which are from England. So we do have a good number of listeners who may be more familiar even than us with prison life in England and Wales. Since we are going to be discussing research that has taken place in England and Wales and Norway, can you start off by just highlighting for our listeners why a predominantly North American audience should care about this comparison of prison life in England and Wales versus Norway?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's occurred to me as well. Well, I guess one way to think of it is of this study Is that it's a kind of case study of a case study, so to speak. So, an example of a form of cross national analysis with England and Wales and Norway standing in for different kinds of jurisdictions with different kinds of social and political arrangements and different sensibilities when it comes to punishment. So, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this, but Norway is generally held up to be the model of sort of liberal, humane, progressive punishment. Obviously, well, relatively obviously, the United States is the country that tends to be held up as being on the opposite end of that spectrum in terms of being really very punitive and having a very high imprisonment rate. England and Wales is normally sort of bracketed together with the United States and often with Australia and New Zealand as a kind of neoliberal country. In other words, with quite a strong commitment to sort of free market economics and deregulation, a culture of economic individualism, and so on. Although England and Wales is very, very different from the US in all sorts of ways, it's there as an example of a sort of penal jurisdiction that, that is relatively exclusionary, that's sort of relatively punitive. In practical terms, the reason for it being England and Wales is that's where I'm based. I have pretty good and trusting relationships with people in our prison and probation service, which means that getting access to prisons is something that isn't impossible for me, whereas very, very difficult to get access to prisons in the US, certainly in some states. In some ways, you could argue that the United States would have been an even better example, but for all sorts of reasons, England and Wales is the jurisdiction that we picked here. The other reason is that the overall research program on which the article is based, which my study is based, it's an attempt to bring together two different domains of scholarship when it comes to punishment. One is, I think, macro studies. So theoretical accounts of penality, which tend to provide quite a broad sweep analysis of variations in things like punitiveness. And these are studies that tend to use things like imprisonment rates to measure the relative harshness or leniency of punishment or sometimes look at prison conditions, but don't tend to look at what the experience of imprisonment is like. And then the other domain has the opposite sort of limitation, I think, which is sort of micro accounts of prison life, which tell us a lot about the nature and experience of imprisonment, but are often quite disconnected from the analysis of broader trends and sensibilities. And so Eamon Carabine has said that the problem here is that we therefore don't have all that much research that manages to tell us something both about what prison is like and also what it's for. And so this research programme that my colleagues and I engaged in was designed to try to meet the call, partly from David Garland in his Sutherland address in 2012, for what he called small n comparisons. In other words, in-depth comparison of a small number of jurisdictions with the objective of exploring the connection between policies, practices, and the -the on-the-ground experience of imprisonment. I'm slightly contorting what he said, but I guess the point I'm making is that I hope that North American audiences will still be interested in a form of analysis that we don't do completely in the article that we're going to discuss today, but we do in the broader research program that's trying to sort of look all the way through from sort of policy formation down to the everyday life and experience of incarceration.
0: That's a very cool study. I'm sure it has been a long work in progress.
2: Yes, and I should shout out at this point to my colleagues. I wouldn't want anyone to think that I've done this on my own. So this was quite a large research program overall, a five-year program of research with my colleagues, Alice Irvins, Julie Lawson, Christian Mjolland, Anna Schlier. And in terms of some of the work that we're discussing today, Simon Larmor, who, who did quite a lot of the quantitative analysis for us.
1: All right. Uh, to help familiarize our audience with the prison systems in the areas that you discuss in your paper, can you give us an overview of the Prison structure in England and Wales, things like the types of facilities, how many facilities, how many people are incarcerated in England and Wales, that sort of thing.
2: Sure. So, the reason we're talking about England and Wales rather than the UK is that there is a prison system that is specific to England and Wales. So, Scotland and Northern Ireland have their own system. So, the reason I keep saying England and Wales is because that's the sort of accurate description of the jurisdiction. There are around 86,000 people in our system in, I think, something like 123 prisons, most of which are run by the public sector, but we have, I lose count now, 16 or 17, I think, that are run by private companies. England and Wales has a very high imprisonment rate compared to most countries in Western Europe. So it's around 133 per 100,000 people in the population. That is higher than places like France and Italy, is almost double the imprisonment rate in Germany. So we're a bit of an outlier within Western Europe. Prisons range from high security down to open prisons. So for men, there are four security categories. There are two for women. And the prison system has not been in a great state for a number of years, I would say, in that maybe for the last 10 years or so, there have been really significant cuts in funding, which mean, because the main expense in any prison is staff costs, it means that staffing levels have been cut, staff are much less experienced, there have been really significant increases in the use of drugs and in violence, both between prisoners and also assaults on staff. So it's a system that's really not in good shape overall, but that's the basic structure of it.
1: And you mentioned a few minutes ago that England and Wales have this neoliberal political economy. How does this play into like the way that the prison system there operates and how prisoners are treated within the system?
2: That's a good question. I think the way it plays out is that countries that tend to define success within broader society in terms of individual economic achievement are also more likely to see people who kind of fail within that structure, by which I mean don't succeed economically and may end up breaking the law. But individuals are seen to be responsible for their own failings, if that makes sense. So this is not my argument so much as one established by other scholars, but people are punished more harshly than they would be, or than they might be in countries with a more collectivist ethos, where there might be a stronger sense that that law-breaking is not just the fault of the individual, but also reflects something about the faults in society. So Norway counts as an example of that kind of society, along with the other Nordic countries, where generally there's a stronger sense that everyone is part of a kind of national community. I mean, I'm obviously generalising enormously here, but to talk in quite general terms, I think in more social democratic or inclusionary countries, there's just a stronger sense that that even when we punish people, we shouldn't exclude them from the social fold, that we ought to think of them as people who retain most aspects of their citizenship, and that we ought to see them as people who will be coming out and being our neighbours and therefore who we want to ensure are damaged as little as possible by their prison experience. Certainly some Nordic scholars have also argued that it's harder to punish people who you know and understand so that in societies that are, or to put it in the opposite way, in countries that are very unequal and countries that in which there might be a huge amount of sorts of diversity, the risks are that it's easy to see other people as entirely different or threatening. So I think that's probably the basis of some of the differences, and that that's bound to have an impact on wider sensibilities within society, but also. The ways in which we think about and resource our criminal justice systems.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so can you then, you know, you started to get into Norway here and its kind of political economy. Can you give us the lay of the land as it relates to the structure then of the prison system in Norway?
2: Sure. So the prison population in Norway is around 3,000. Obviously, it has a much smaller national population, Mm -hmm. but if we look at the imprisonment rate, it's way lower than England and Wales, so it's around 54 per 100,000 people Mm -hmm. in the population. So you'll remember England and Wales is 133. 54 is that's pretty low for Western Europe, it's in the same kind of area as the other Nordic countries. So these are low imprisonment countries, or at least low in terms of the imprisonment rate. One thing that's worth saying is quite a lot of people do kind of go through the prison system in a country like Norway, but they tend to be there for short periods. So sentences are relatively short. So at any one time, there aren't, you know, the, the prison population and the imprisonment rate are relatively low, but quite a lot of people do experience imprisonment. Norway has, I think, around 58 prisons overall. Many of them are very small to a degree that may seem absurd to some North American listeners, in that, that some prisons in Norway have less than 20 people in them. I think the average is around 70. The largest prison in Norway, which is Oslo Prison, I think certainly until recently only had about 400 people in it. Certainly in England and Wales now, a prison of 400 people would be considered very small. I imagine that's true of the US as well. So that's the basic structure of the system. And as I already mentioned, I think Norway is seen as a very inclusionary state in which part of the philosophy of imprisonment is that conditions ought to be as similar to the outside world as possible. So this is sometimes referred to as the normality principle. And one thing that means is the quality of things like health provision, work and education within prisons should be equivalent to what's provided to people in the community. And that's something that's often said in other countries too. But I think there's just a much greater commitment to it in practice in Norway than than one finds elsewhere. And as I mentioned, some of this is about the idea that the prison system ought to be thinking about creating good citizens or creating the kinds of neighbours that you would want to have. And that's quite built into the way prison staff in Norway talk about what it is they're trying to do.
0: Yeah, so... As you're saying, the prison or the Norwegian correctional system is really touted, I think, around the world for its humane practices, its normalization of prisoner-officer interactions. I've never seen a Norway prison, but if you Google you know, Norwegian prisons, you can find images of what their typical cells look like. And they kind of look like what I went through in college for a dorm room, so they're nice in quotes But compared to other prisons, you know, they're pretty nice. You know, I worked on a project in the Oregon Department of Corrections and some of their administrators and officers did this exchange program with the Norwegian Correctional Service back in 2018. And I just remember them telling us how amazed they were by the rapport and relationships officers had with incarcerated individuals one person, who remember them saying, like, there wasn't an us versus them dynamic. You know, they had professional boundaries, but it was much more integrated and the whole atmosphere and tone was very different. So I just think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about, you know, hearing that from correctional officers and administrators in the U.S. And I think this really goes into this idea in your paper of the which. Some I can't remember. John Pratt, I think, is the one who used this term, the Nordic exceptionalism thesis. Can you tell us just more about the observations made by Pratt and then Anna Erickson, Anna Erickson, that created this idea of Nordic
2: exceptionalism? Yeah, sure. So one of John Pratt's starting points, I think, was that when we talk about exceptionalism, when it comes to penal practices, quite often traditionally we've turned to the US as the sort of outlier in terms of just the sheer rate of incarceration and also the extremity of some of the conditions of incarceration, plus the ongoing use of capital punishment. That Certainly in the global north, the US often looks like it's the exception. But of course, there's another end to that spectrum, which is countries that are Unusually mild or humane in their punishment practices. I think what John Pratt and and John Pratt and Anna Erickson, sort of together in some publications, wanted to do was to explore what that more progressive end of the sort of penal spectrum might look like. So the conclusion of their work, I guess, was that in various important ways, the sort of culture of penality was less punitive and more decent, and I suppose more restrained than we find elsewhere in the global north. And they assess this in two ways. First, just by imprisonment rates, which are very easy to compare. But secondly, prison conditions, which they define quite broadly in terms of staff-prisoner relationships, levels of respect and trust that were shown to people in prison, prison size Conditions and standards, including things like the amount of time out of cell that people had within prison and the quality of their visiting arrangements and so on, but also things like the opportunities for work and education, which I mentioned just a minute ago. And a lot of their work charts the historic and cultural reasons for this culture of this relatively mild culture of punishment. And that includes things like the ethnic and religious uniformity of the Nordic country, certainly until relatively recently, the strength of their welfare states, the fact that they are relatively equal societies, so that they have never had, they never really had sort of land-owning elites, a sense of togetherness brought about by harsh climates even. So lots of their work is really about forms of discourse around punishment and penal cultures, So again, by which I mean a more forgiving and less punitive attitude towards people convicted of crimes. They were slightly less interested in the end in what I would call the lived experience of imprisonment, which in a way is what most of my work has always been about. And so so part of what we were interested in, in establishing this research programme, was sort of probing the Nordic exceptionalism thesis a little further further and a little more systematically than John Pratt and Pratt and Ericsson had been able to do.
1: There are some people, particularly those from Nordic jurisdictions, that have levied critiques against Pratt and Ericsson, saying that the Nordic exceptionalism thesis is deficient. Give us a little more insight as to what are the critiques that have been levied against Pratt and Eriksson?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I always find this kind of quite funny, which is that Everyone thinks of the Nordic societies as sort of milder and more respectful and trusting and humane and so on, apart from Nordic people who have tended, or certainly some Nordic scholars who have tended to push back against the Nordic exceptionalism thesis. I think some of this stems from a tradition of quite critical criminology within the Nordic countries, and therefore a sort of responsibility to point out that prisons in those countries are still very much prison-like and shouldn't be romanticized. But the critiques have come from various angles. I mean, one is methodological. The argument being that some of the work that's contributed to the Nordic exceptionalism thesis is a bit methodologically thin. So John Pratt, in his original articles, which were published in, I think 2008, in the British Journal of Criminology, that analysis was mainly based on fairly brief visits that he made to prisons in the Nordic countries accompanied generally by prison staff. So, you know, this is very different from the kind of in-depth prison ethnography that lots of scholars engage in. And his research wasn't sort of highly systematic in its comparison. So one of the critiques is, you know, that this might be a relatively superficial reading of what's actually going on in prisons. The second is that the analysis doesn't take enough account of some aspects of Nordic penality that look quite a lot less rosy. So, one is the treatment of foreign national prisoners. A second is the issue of pre-trial solitary confinement. But so, the Nordic countries tend to make quite a lot of use of solitary confinement among people who have not yet gone to court, and clearly that's inconsistent with the idea that the system is entirely humane. There are some more complex critiques. I think one. That's outlined very effectively by Peter Scharf Smith and Thomas Ugolvic is that the Nordic societies have always had a tendency to be quite interventionist, that they place the interests of the state above those of individual citizens, and that that results in quite invasive policies, for example, towards drug users, vagrancy, and so on. And linked to this is an argument that we shouldn't be too naive about rehabilitative practices, that rehabilitation certainly that the line between rehabilitation and something a bit more authoritarian can be quite thin. So that in states that are quite interventionist, the risk is that those states try to sort of normalise people in particular ways. In other words, that they try to shape people to become particular kinds of subjects, that might be quite Suffocating or intrusive, or, you know, it involves the intrusion of the state into your life much more than we might find in some other states. But I think the main critique has been look, prisons are still pain inducing institutions. And the accusation, therefore, has been that some of John Pratt's work and Pratt and Erickson's work might have overlooked some of the more negative aspects of the system and that we just shouldn't idealize imprisonment in the Nordic countries, if what that means is that we neglect to notice that these are still prisons, that they're not benign or benevolent, that there's a lot of pain and damage going on, even in a system that is purportedly progressive.
1: So you say that some of these criticisms may hold water, but that it's kind of dependent on whether they're absolute or relative. And I think you've started to kind of get into that a little bit, but can you tell us more about what you mean with absolute or relative?
2: Yeah. So my colleagues and I talked about this a lot because it felt to us that some scholarship, what it appeared to do, and perhaps I'm being a bit too reductive here, but some scholarship identified that imprisonment in Nordic countries had many features in common with imprisonment elsewhere. Or that prisoners talked about the pains of imprisonment or their frustrations in a way that, that corresponded with what people say in other jurisdictions, and that this somehow was a really decisive, fatal blow to the Nordic exceptionalism thesis. In other words, look, you know, here, these prisons don't look that different from elsewhere. And that scholarship is really important because, of course, it is really important to identify the similarities and commonalities, and as I say, not to think that prisons in the Nordic countries are so radically different as to almost be nice places to send people. But our feeling was that it was possible, that it was surely possible to say two things at the same time. One is that, yes, imprisonment in the Nordic countries might still be damaging and destructive and in many ways, inhumane. But at the same time, that it might be less damaging and less destructive and less inhumane in some quite significant ways compared to elsewhere. And in some of the research, there's a kind of slippage, I think, between claims that feel relative, in other words, is imprisonment in the Nordic countries sort of more milder, or more humane, less punitive than elsewhere, and absolute claims about whether we could use those terms at all. I think one could say that that perhaps Pratt and Pratt and Erickson failed to describe some of the harsh elements of Nordic penality, but their argument was clearly a relative one. And so what we wanted to do was engage in a really solid and systematic comparative analysis. I guess to some degree, we were motivated by the desire to sort of critically assess the degree to which the Nordic exceptionalism thesis stood up to empirical scrutiny and also to identify the different strengths and weaknesses of the two systems in which we based our research.
0: All right. So let's then, you know, we've been kind of going around and around your article. Let's really jump into it. So it's titled okay. Nordic Penal Exceptionalism, a Comparative Empirical Analysis. And in this article, the main goal was to examine, as you mentioned, the relative quality and humane treatment of imprisonment in countries with different kinds of political economies. That is what we've been talking about, England and Wales compared to Norway. And you do note that assessing like the quality of prison regimes is kind of a controversial topic. And yet you aimed and you did compare prison systems. Can you tell us just why is it controversial to make these comparisons? And why do you think it is important to make the comparisons, even given these controversies? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's possible that that part of the article is more defensive than it needs to be. I think it stemmed from the sense that scholars from a more radical tradition tend to argue or imply that comparisons and evaluations of prisons miss the fundamental point that these are repressive institutions and that the differences between them are in essence quite minor, that they're all in the same business of punishment and the infliction of pain, which is That's quite a stark term, but that's clearly what punishment is intended to do. And I think there's a similar point in Foucauldian perspectives, or a related point, which is that what appears to be reform might actually amount to and conceal more effective ways to discipline people. So so both of those critiques, in a sense, say that that comparison might be naive or might miss a more important point. And I do have quite a lot of sympathy for some of those arguments, but at the same time, and the reason why we engaged in this comparison, I do find it really essential to try to understand differences. I don't think they're minor, not in the way that they are experienced. And I also worry that it's unduly pessimistic and maybe empirically a bit incurious to always be dismissive of reform and difference. So... To always see reform as a way of legitimising punishment, legitimating punishment, and to think that differences don't matter. Now, one reason I feel that is that prisoners themselves are very clear that these differences do matter. Um, In all the work that I've done, particularly with my colleague Alison Liebling, what we find all the time is that people in prison are very good and very sophisticated evaluators of their own experiences. Part of what I mean by that is they're really able and keen to tell you as a researcher that this prison is more decent than that one, that this place is more respectful or less respectful or more damaging than that one. And they're very clear that those differences shape their own experiences and outcomes in some really significant ways. Partly we know that that there's a connection between forms of treatment in prisons and things like suicide rates within prisons. But, but even if we look at other sorts of outcomes like well-being or hope for the future, it does make a difference what prison you're in. So even if, I mean, I think it's obviously true to say that even the best prisons are likely to only have a limited positive impact on a limited number of people and generally they might cause damage. I think it's also true to say That there's a big difference between the amount of damage caused by the worst prisons out there in any system compared to the least bad ones. So, I think there's an argument that is humanistic, that takes seriously the fact that some prisons are more or less survivable or destructive than others. And then there's also an argument that is more scholarly, in that my colleagues and I are interested in how and why penal institutions differ. In terms of how they function and the impacts that they have on people,
1: at face value, it may seem like this comparative prison research might be pretty easy to pull off. You know, some people might think, you know, I'm going to draw a circle for prison A, draw a circle for prison V, Venn diagram. Let's see what shakes out. But after we read your paper, we started to sort of realize that it might not be that easy. In fact, it might be much more complicated. And so for this study, you and your colleagues drew on three methods, sub-studies undertaken in England and Wales and Norway, including a longitudinal study of entry into and release from prison among mainstream male prisoners, female prisoners, and men convicted of sexual offenses, semi-ethnographic studies of prisons holding men convicted of sexual offenses and female prisoners, and a study of the deepest parts of each prison system And so for this article, you primarily used the quantitative data while using your observations and interviews to inform the conclusions. Can you tell us more and go into more detail about some of the issues that you encountered in conducting this systematic comparative analysis
2: and how you went about handling the issues that came up? Yeah. Comparison is really hard.
0: No Venn diagrams.
2: No, Well, you know, I wish the best of luck to whoever does the Venn diagram. The article that we're discussing, in a way, is an attempt to do two things at once. I don't know whether it does that successfully, but one is to report the findings of the analysis, which I think we'll come to in a bit. But the second is to provide a kind of serious methodological reflection about the real complexities of comparing two very different prison systems in very different countries. And I can give you a few examples of those difficulties. One is, for example, prison size is just, I've already mentioned this, it's just really different in England and Wales compared to Norway. And the example we use in the article is Pentonville, which is quite a famous prison, I guess, certainly this side of the Atlantic. It's a very large local prison in London, which means it mainly holds people who have not gone to trial or not yet been sentenced or who are um, serving very short sentences or at the start of their sentence. Well, Pentonville holds 1,300 people. As I mentioned before, the largest prison in the Norwegian system is Oslo. At the time that we were doing our research, Oslo was being refurbished, so we couldn't do our fieldwork there, which meant we did it in Bergen prison. Well, Bergen is Norway's second largest city. But, well, firstly, as a prison, it holds, I think, just over 250 men. And secondly... Bergen is just not the same as London, right? So if you were trying to do a comparison that would meet the requirements of real methodological purists, you would match them on every dimension, every variable possible. Well, you just can't do that because there is not a single prison in Norway. I don't think there would be a local prison, England and Wales, anywhere near the size of Bergen. As I say, just over 250. But what it means is, of course, that means... The prison, not just that the size of the prison is different, but also the population is composed in a different way. You know, London is a city of several million people. It's very diverse, very high levels of inequality and so on. Bergen is quite different. It is a major city in some ways, but the population is under 300,000. It's not as diverse as London and so on. Secondly, there are differences in the way that the systems are constituted. So to give an example there, People convicted of sexual offences in England and Wales, certainly men, are held separately from what we would call sort of mainstream prisoners, but that's not the case in Norway. There are some units that only hold people convicted of sexual offences, but generally people with that offence type are sort of they're integrated within the broader prison population and as you mentioned Jose men convicted of sexual offences were one of the groups we wanted to look at but they're being held in very different kinds of conditions so again the comparison is flawed. One of the things that meant was and we kept discussing this like what exactly are we comparing because I think you have to at least hold something steady and solid and so firstly it meant selecting institutions that might not be directly comparable with each other, but represented typical kinds of institutions within their own jurisdictions. And secondly, we wanted to understand the sort of typical prison experience, for want of a better phrase, for men or women or people convicted of sexual offences within the particular system they were in. But again, it means you're not comparing or the sense in which you're comparing like with like In our study, it wasn't organised strictly around the institution because they just were a bit non-comparable. Some of the other things that were really difficult were to do with things like language and culture. We tried really hard not to do something that has been identified as a flaw of lots of comparative studies, which is to sort of... We didn't want to build the study on an assumption, you know, that what happens in England and Wales is the norm and what happens elsewhere is somehow deviation from the norm. It felt really important not to do that. But of course, you have to start somewhere. And linguistically, we started in English. By that, I mean, when we were designing our interview questions and our survey, we constructed it in English and then we translated it. So firstly, there's an issue there, which is that if you start somewhere, to some degree, you can't dispute that you're sort of imposing A set of sort of norms from one place on somewhere that may not have those norms. But the other thing is that terms that translate into each other don't always mean exactly the same thing. So the terms in Norwegian for things like power and trust, they don't have exactly the same sort of connotation or tone. So the term in Norwegian for power is, I think, makt, but that means something more forceful and more coercive than the term means in English. The term for trust is rather more formal in Norway than England and Wales. And all of these things have consequences, because if you use those words, you're implying something different to people in one country compared to another. There were some other issues. For example, once we had translated our interview questions into Norwegian, we asked a Norwegian colleague to look over it. I should say before that, that Christian Mjoland on the project is Norwegian, Julie Larsson is Danish. So Danish and Norwegian are similar languages, so you know they had linguistic competence, of course. But we wanted to run it by a couple of other people, and one person to whom we sent the interview schedule came back to us and said, "You've got a lot of questions about how people feel, and that feels a bit invasive, and perhaps Norwegians they might feel that those questions are extremely direct." This had not occurred to me at all. I ask people all the time when I do my research how they feel about elements of their incarceration. In a way, it was very helpful feedback about, okay, there are some cultural differences here that some people might find that kind of questioning very personal. So there were lots of ways in which it's just, again, it's very difficult to make the comparison perfect. One of the ways that we tried to deal with this was through the fact that Julie and Christian are basically fluent, speak fantastic English, but also They could do the research in in both countries. We were a team of five. Three of us mainly conducted research in England and Wales because we didn't speak Norwegian. And even though most Norwegians speak good English, it's really hard to do, I think, really subtle, nuanced interviewing with people who don't speak English as a first language. They can tell you about their experiences, but you don't get the same sort of quality of description and expression as you would get if they were speaking in their sort of mother tongue but it meant Julie and Christian did most of the research in Norway but they sort of acted as pivots as well they sort of Julie in particular split her time between England and Wales and Norway so that at least meant that they were able to sort of translate between the two and we all spent quite a lot of time in we had very long team meetings we often would put a whole day aside then we would go out in the evening and carry on talking. And we would do that as a way of trying to work out whether we were doing comparison properly and to talk through what we were seeing and hearing and thinking and sort of asking each other do similar things happen you know, here and there, for example. The one other thing that I would say that makes comparison difficult, and perhaps we'll come back to this later, is that there are things that you notice as a researcher that your participants don't comment on for very good reason, which is that they take certain things for granted. And the best example in our study is noise. Prisons in England and Wales, particularly large local prisons in old buildings, are often really noisy. Those in Norway tend to be fairly quiet. But people don't, when you're asking them about aspects of their experience, people don't say to you in Norway, What I like about this prison is that it's quiet. And why not? Well, because you don't notice quietness unless you're used to loudness, if that makes sense. So what we noticed was, wow, there's a, and certainly my Christian, our Norwegian colleague, really noticed very quickly, like, oh my God, prisons in England are just really noisy and sort of feel a bit chaotic and on edge. But we didn't have much commentary on that when we interviewed people in Norway, because why would they be able to identify a -hmm. distinction in terms of volume? I don't know if that makes sense, but it's partly a way of saying like people don't notice things that they take for granted. And the same is true of researchers, of course, and that's part of the value of doing comparison.
0: Yeah, sounds like a lot of challenges and trying to find clever ways of dealing with them in a way that makes the most sense. All right, so let's jump into the findings then of your paper. And you first off start off by exploring the overall survey results for England and Wales and Norway, including all of the Mm -hmm. incarcerated individuals you sampled, which was, correct me if I'm wrong, but 806 people in England and Wales and 276 people in Norway. And you focused on 13 dimensions that are very linked to this idea of penal exceptionalism including experiences related to humanity, living conditions, staff-prisoner relationships, forms of death linked to contact with the outside world, and levels of control and restriction, feelings of psychological intrusiveness, and the degree to which the experience of imprisonment is experienced as punitive and degrading. So Mm -hmm. before we jump into your actual results, can you just Briefly give us an overview of this underlying conceptual framework that you use for comparing jurisdictions.
2: Yes. So, for a number of years, I've been trying to sort of build up a conceptual framework, which comprises a set of, I guess, sort of almost spatial metaphors for thinking about what I would call the texture of imprisonment. And those concepts are depth, weight, tightness, and breadth. And to try to summarize them briefly, Depth is mainly about the relationship between imprisonment and liberty. So it's mainly about things like levels of security and control. And it's trying to get at the degree to which life in prison and life in the community differ and diverge. Like how normal or abnormal does imprisonment feel? To what degree do people in prison retain the rights of citizenship? What do they have access to? And so on. Weight is mainly about treatment by prison staff and also prison conditions. So, you know, time out of cell, sort of material and physical conditions, the nature of the regime and so on. Tightness is quite complicated and it's really about the sort of psychological grip that the institution exerts upon people in prison. So some of that is about the degree to which it demands that you change. And that's shaped by things like incentive schemes or, Risk assessments, expectations that people demonstrate changes in their cognition and conduct. So it's about the various ways that the system induces and requires people to engage in certain forms of practices and subjectivities. And then breadth, which isn't that relevant to this piece of work, but is to the overall project, is really about the impact of the prison system and the sentence beyond the point when people are released from custody. So it's not the same as resettlement, but it's more about the way in which the sentence and the prison kind of cast a shadow over the individual once they leave. So this framework, the reason it felt important to have something like this is partly to provide a really stable structure for the comparison, and also something that would keep the comparison contained, because I think one of the challenges of comparative analysis is knowing when to stop. Like, what don't you need to compare? So we thought of it as both sort of scaffolding and skin. It kind of it provided a sort of skeleton, but also it kept us to the task. The concepts are they might feel quite abstract, but in some ways I think that's very helpful for comparison because I've sort of mentioned this a bit already, but. One of the risks when you compare between jurisdictions is that you quite quickly come to realise that you can't compare. And what I mean by that is, let's say in one jurisdiction there's a set of offending behaviour programmes or searching practices, and then you decide you're going to look at them in another jurisdiction. But actually, they're so different there that you're not quite sure what it is you're actually comparing, or you end up assuming that what happens in one place is the real thing and what happens elsewhere is just doesn't quite live up to the mark or something like that, whereas these concepts that we used are a bit fuzzier, and I think that's helpful because what it means is that you compare the sort of texture or the feel to which certain sorts of practices or relationships or dynamics contribute. And the reason I keep using this word texture, it's quite deliberate it conveys both an objective and a subjective quality to things. And what I mean by that is a piece of silk or wood, they have structural properties that mean that they are certain things. You know, we could look at their structural composition, but also they have a feel that is more subjective and sensory. And that's what in my work and in this research project, that's what we wanted to get at. What's the sort of textural quality of imprisonment in these two jurisdictions. So what we did within the research was we used this framework as the basis for our interview questions and also for a survey that we developed. We sort of built up inductively. We then engaged in a form of confirmatory factor analysis to make sure that the dimensions were internally reliable. And so, yes, so we used this framework in all of the sub-studies within the research programme as a way of trying to provide a kind of dimensional account of similarities and differences between the two prison systems.
0: All right. So using this underlying conceptual framework, in your initial comparison of England and Wales to Norway, what did you conclude from your results? Did the Nordic exceptionalism thesis ring true, so to speak?
2: Yeah, it did. We found a very clear and consistent pattern that in almost every respect, so on all but one of the dimensions in the study, prisoners in Norway rated their quality of life more positively, or if you want, less negatively, than those in England and Wales. And I'm going to give a few examples which I noted down, because I think it's just worth getting into the sort of detail of some of this data. So a few examples. In Norway, 60% of prisoners agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, I feel cared about most of the time in this prison, compared to 29% in England and Wales. In Norway, 66% disagreed or strongly disagreed with the statement, I am not being treated as a human being in here, compared to 48% in England and Wales. 13% in Norway said that they feared for their physical safety, The figure is double that in England and Wales, 26%. Again, very big differences in terms of things, statements like, I have no control over my day to day life in here, or this prison is doing harm to me. So, in all sorts of areas, Norway looks more humane in some really significant ways. But to go back to the point we were discussing just a minute ago, on the one hand, these are really big differences in lots of areas. But in absolute terms, it's still clearly the case that a high proportion of men and women in the Norwegian prison system are saying that their treatment lacks humanity, that they feel unsafe, that the system is harming them. So again, just to give some examples, because I think spelling this out in terms of percentages is quite helpful. 41% of our sample in Norway agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, this system treats me more like a number than a person. 20% disagreed or strongly disagreed that staff here treat prisoners fairly. And almost a quarter agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, my experience in this prison is painful. And also with the statement, my treatment in this prison is humiliating. And so this just goes back to the point I was making earlier. There's no doubt based on the general results that the Nordic exceptionalism thesis as set out or the portion of it that's to do with prisoner experiences is supported by our data. But some of the critiques are also supported if by that we mean, let's not overlook the fact that imprisonment in Norway, and let's assume in other Nordic countries, still comes with a huge amount of pain and distress and the feeling of being disrespected or humiliated or damaged and so on. So I think it's possible, you know, these things are both true at the same time.
1: Staying on with the Nordic penal exceptionalism. So one of the things you looked at was open versus closed prisons. And so we just wanted to ask what your conclusions were when you were looking at these dimensions. And then like you mentioned earlier, how people get held in solitary before they've even gone to trial. So kind of how does this all tie in with the Nordic penal exceptionalism?
2: Yeah, we broke the analysis down in various ways to explore some of these issues. So firstly, what we found was that the survey findings were much more positive for open prisons in Norway than open prisons in England and Wales. And that helped explain the overall survey results. Because in Norway and in our sample, a much higher proportion of people within prison are held in open conditions. So by open conditions, I mean... Prisons where there's a lot more freedom, a lot less situational control, more trust, people going to work in the community, just more normalised relationships. And these conditions, open conditions, are much more positive in Norway than in England and Wales. And as I say, this matters because almost two thirds of prisoners who come into the Norwegian system once they're sentenced, are immediately placed in open conditions. It's just much more normal to spend either some or all of your sentence in open conditions in Norway than it is in England and Wales, where whatever happens in the system here, when you come into prison, you start off in a closed, fairly secure establishment. So these results help to explain quite a lot of the differences that we've found. When we compared closed prisons in England and Wales and Norway, the differences were only marginally more positive in Norway. And this was a real shock to us. And in a way it is part of the methodological reflection that we engage in in the article, because the survey data just didn't correspond with the differences that we felt and that were described to us. In our through our interviews and sort of direct observations and informal conversations. In other words, we think the survey results, if anything, and to quite a significant degree, or quite a substantial degree, understate the degree to which there were differences in experience between the two systems. Because in terms of things like safety, respect, fairness, all sorts of important elements of prison life, we felt, and what prisoners described to us, was just a really vast difference between Norway and England and Wales. Perhaps we'll come back to that in a second, but you also mentioned individuals on remand, so unsentenced and potentially held in conditions of solitary confinement. So again, we tried to break down the analysis so that we could explore that. And particularly because one of the criticisms of the Nordic exceptionalism thesis is that it doesn't seem to sort of discuss, or to a great degree, these pre-trial conditions that seem extremely repressive. What we found in Norway was that the differences between being on remand and being sentenced were really substantial, um, much more so than when we compared being on remand and being sentenced in England and Wales. Again, this is mainly because so many more prisoners are held in open conditions once sentenced than they are when they're on remand. and It means that the experience of confinement in Norway is really dependent on that distinction. If you are pre-trial on remand, then actually those conditions are, or they were reported to us to be pretty dire. If you are sentenced and in open conditions, then Norway looks a lot more humane. And although this is really obvious, one of the things it's telling us is that there's a huge amount of variation within any prison system. So that when we talk about differences between systems, we need to be careful not to generalise based on one or two subgroups within any system, because in Norway, your experience is pretty dreadful if you are pre-trial, and in relative terms, it's not so bad if you are sentenced and in open conditions. And just finally on that, we found, even though what I'm saying is that remand conditions in Norway were reported to be pretty bad, they were worse among prisoners on remand in England and Wales. Now, that is partly because if you're in a local prison in England and Wales, although you're not technically held in conditions of solitary confinement, you're probably in your cell for quite a lot of the day. And you're being held probably in an old and crumbling building that may be quite chaotic. But one thing that's worth noting about that is that in both jurisdictions, it means that the people who experience the worst conditions are also the people who have not been found guilty of anything.
0: Just crazy. And I feel like that's probably pretty similar in the U.S. as well. I haven't done a lot of work in that area, but I could see how it would be very similar. All right, so given everything that we've discussed, what would you say are the potential implications this paper can have for research and then also policy and practice?
2: Gosh, there's a lot to (laughs) cover. I guess in terms of research, I mean, one thing is that I hope that the framework itself provides a basis for comparison that other people might use. It still needs a lot of work, and I think that certainly if we looked beyond the global north, and I'm sure within it, there are dimensions we could add to it quite productively. But one, I guess, the point I'm making there really is I hope the framework is useful beyond this particular study. Um, I guess I hope that the findings help explain differences as well. But this is partly about the different composition of a prison system, so the way it's organised, and partly about different kinds of staff-prisoner relationships and forms of treatment. So that in Norway, staff are less punitive, they're more compassionate, they tend to see prisoners as human beings with flaws rather than as sort of lesser subspecies. And there's a greater commitment to people maintaining their ties with the community and making their time productive and so on. So there are some of the implications, but not at a very high level, come from just the basis of the findings. And perhaps I should just move on to talk about this question you raised to policy and practice, which is to say, I think there is a lot that we can learn based on what I've just recounted, which is that there are some ways in which we could be more like Norway. So prison officers in Norway are trained for much longer. Their social status within wider society is higher than in England and Wales. Their pay is higher, relatively speaking. There's a stronger orientation to a kind of social work form of practice. There's much less cynicism. So Thomas Ugelvik, who didn't work on this project, but is a good colleague, very close colleague, said to me, and he was right, You just probably won't hear the same kind of super cynical, super punitive attitudes towards prisoners expressed in Norway, as you hear in lots of other places, and and that proved to be true. But also Norway has small prisons with small units, so staff really get to know the people they're working with. They talk together, they often eat together. I think that's one of the things that when U.S correctional officers go over to norway occasionally they cannot believe that people in prison are cooking and they are trusted with knives and then they sit down and eat with officers this is really normal in norway and it's seen as a really key part of constructing productive relationships and also i think the focus on in norway is on minimizing harm and damage so that's really the underlying basis or perhaps the underlying outcome of the normality principle, that one of the things we ended up concluding is that much of the difference between the two systems isn't about, it's not just about what is provided to people in prison, it's also about a commitment to doing as little damage to people as possible when they're inside. The only other thing I want to say is in a way to place some brackets around This idea that we should just be more like Norway, because occasionally when people say, well, let's just be Norway, it's terribly naive. Norway is just a really different kind of society in all kinds of respects. You can't just become a different kind of place. And my colleagues and I often found this a bit frustrating. I think this is the trope that you find quite often in sort of media reporting, like let's just be Norway. You can't be the same as somewhere else. Norway has its own history and culture. It's a very different kind of society. It's a high-trust society with a strong welfare state. But you can't just transport an entire system or transpose it onto another, if that made sense. So again, I'm saying two things that might sound inconsistent. But as I say, one is be more like Norway. And on the other hand, don't pretend that you can be Norway. Eight. Yeah. Well,
0: Oh, was the you of something.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to quickly say uh, there's a distinction of be more like versus be that.
2: Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: So, yeah. like, what pieces of this can we take that we can also apply without trying to become a clone?
2: And people are doing that. So I should have mentioned this already, I think. But certainly the example of this that I know best is the work that Jordan Hyatt and Suniva Anderson are doing at, I think it's DCI Chester in Pennsylvania, where they have a unit that they call, I think they call it Little Scandinavia. And they have really deliberately tried to emulate there what they've seen in Norway. And as I understand it, they're doing that with Considerable success. There's certainly elements of practice that you can take from elsewhere, but obviously limits. And some of those limits, I think, are about what happens to people when they leave. My anxiety about setting up a kind of unit that would resemble Norway is well, unless you then put in place forms of support that people get when they leave prison in Norway, and frankly, unless you can recreate the kind of communities that you get in Norway, which we found to be, we did find to be more forgiving and more inclusionary, then this is not a criticism of the work they're doing. It's just about the limitation of trying to sort of reproduce something in a very different context is that once people might, you know, that the context is not just the prison environment, it's Mm -hmm. also the wider community.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, be like Norway, but don't necessarily try to be Norway. Is that the tagline for the episode?
2: Yeah, what, right, but try but it's, it's difficult
0: <laughs> yeah all right well thank you so much ben that is all the time that we have it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and we just thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us um, well, thank you
2: so much and thank you for such excellent questions
0: yeah thank you if anyone wants to reach out and talk to you more or find out more about your work where is the best or what's the best way for them to get a hold of you
2: I think if you Google me, my details come up fairly quickly and that should include my email address. I'm also on ResearchGate. So yeah, please feel free to get in touch.
0: Awesome. Are you on Twitter or X or whatever? I
2: am. Yes, I don't use it a huge amount, but I sort of, I lurk. I don't post a lot, but I do read it a lot, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's what I do too. Same. All right. Well, thank you once again. We look forward to catching up with you soon, hopefully.
2: Thanks very much.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening.
1: Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, criminologyacademy.com.
0: You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y
1: or email us at Academy at gmail.com.
0: See you next, See you next time.
1: time.